Bricks Universe, Episode 9, Nathan Abrams. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. experience. Now, this special episode was edited and assembled by our producer, the one and only Stephen Rigg. So, welcome, Kubrick fans, Droogs, racetrack robbers, lust hogs, slave revolters, mad typists, dueling Englishmen, and fellow scasmates. No need to say Fidelio, just grab some cherry pie, touch the monolith, and enjoy the show. You are invited. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Jason Furlong from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and the host of Kubrick's Universe. For this episode, we have something new and original for you. There is a very interesting new book out from Rutgers University Press by author Nathan Abrams entitled Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual. And to our knowledge, nothing else as in-depth on this culturally unique perspective has ever been done before, not like this. Nathan's research took him many years and, of course, benefited from countless exhaustive hours spent at the Stanley Kubrick archives at the University of Arts in London. So let me tell you a little bit more about our friend and colleague. Nathan Abrams is a professor in film and director of research for the School of Creative Studies and Media at Bangor University in Wales. Nathan also lectures, writes, and broadcasts widely on UK and American popular culture, history of film, and intellectual culture. He co-founded Jewish Film and New Media, an international journal, and has also written several books on the subject of Jewishness in popular culture, including The New Jew in Film, Exploring Jewishness and Judaism in Contemporary Cinema from 2012, and Hidden in Plain Sight, Jews and Jewishness in British Film, Television, and Popular Culture from 2016. Nathan is currently finishing up work on an upcoming book for 2019 titled Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the Making of His Final Film. But it's his current book, just released, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, that he will be talking about in this episode. The following interview you're about to hear with Nathan was conducted by Rabbi Dr. Raphael Zarum at the launch of Nathan's latest book at JW3 in London on the 26th of April, 2018. So good evening, everybody. And welcome to what promises to be a, a fascinating and unusual evening. We're here with Dr. Nathan Abrams, the author of a new book, which I'll hold up straight away, New York Jewish Intellectual, Stanley Kubrick. Um, I always feel the aim of a book launch is to sell the books. Right? It's a kind of Jewish approach to these things. So we're going to have a nice conversation, but the aim of the evening is, I've read this, um, and it's really worth a read. 
and we'll talk about the book and how it came to be during this evening and watch some clips also from Stanley Kubrick movies. So this is a project of a UK Jewish film. Um, I'd like to thank them for helping organize and making this happen tonight. Uh, my name is uh, Rafi Zawam. I'm a, a rabbi and the head of the London School of Jewish Studies, which is a center for, for Jewish thought and, uh, and teaching, uh, teaching and teacher training. But I've, I've loved movies since I was a kid. And I think 10 years ago, Nathan and I did a course called Midrash and Movies at LSJS, London School of Jewish Studies. And I remember almost 10 years ago as well, when you gave a class at Limud about Kubrick. That was the first time I experienced that, and it really fascinated me. Because Nathan's argument, as he's going to talk about, is Kubrick is much more Jewish than people think, in terms of every movie and the issues that are going on there. So, which seems weird, because there are no overt Jewish characters in any Kubrick movies. So what's Nathan on about? So, Nathan, my question is, what's the basic thesis, and why did you write this book? Okay, well, I, I just need to extend my thanks. Kroiso Ebal, welcome to everyone. Um, thanks to Nir for arranging this, UK Jewish Film, uh, film and Rafi. Um, and thanks for coming. Um, okay, I'll tell you how I started on the genesis of this project and then, and then, and then one slight correction. Um, okay. There is one Jewish character okay. uh, uh, in his films. Um, but so small that you'd miss it. Um, when I started at Bangor University in 2006, um, I was asked to teach a module, a new module, and I figured, well, let's do Stanley Kubrick, because he's done 13 films, they cover every genre, and um, that's easy to squeeze in to a semester. And the interesting thing about film studies is, unlike, um, say, English literature, they don't teach directors, they teach genres, where you might study Shakespeare, um, we don't tend to do directors, and I thought this would be different. And it took me years to think, what, what have I got to say that's new about Stanley Kubrick, given how much is written about him? And then it struck me, like it does with everything, <laughs> Jewishness. <laughs> so my, my USP is, you give me something, and I will find the Jewishness in it. And I'm, at the moment, trying to think about the 40th anniversary of Greece, and the Jewishness of Greece. Schmaltz? There we go. Anyway, um, so... so I, I, I ran with that idea of his Jewishness, and, and, and what I've done, the, there's a chap before me called Jeffrey Cox who, who started to locate Kubrick in his Jewish milieu, um, but he basically just looked at the Holocaust. Um, what I did that Jeffrey didn't do was look at Kubrick's archive and any other archive I could find. Um, and so to get a real insight of Kubrick as a, as, as, as a Jewish intellectual. So, um, you know, the... What I've come up with is a lot of resistance. People think, if they hear the word Jewish, they think, oh, he's orthodox and practicing. And um, I'm trying, I, I say to that, no, he didn't believe, he didn't believe in anything. Uh, he didn't practice anything. In fact, by his third marriage, he'd married out. Um, but he was very cultural, uh, culturally, intellectually, ethnically, and the key marker is he was gastronomically Jewish. <laughs> he used to like to go to Froheim's in Golders Green, but moaned that that was the closest deli because he lived in St. Albans. <laughs> there's one nice little story, actually. He lent, a, uh, he lent some David Irving books to one of his uh, assistants, and he sent him to Golders Green to pick up some deli. And he said, but don't leave those in the car. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you say culturally, but explain about what was going on in the, in the 50s in New York, that he was the milieu that he was part of, and why that was so fundamentally Jewish. Okay, so... Um, 
what's happening in New York around the 30s, 40s, 50s in particular. So Kubrick's born in 1928 in the West Bronx, and then he moves to Greenwich Village in his formative years. And around that time, the, there's a group of uh, uh, intellectuals who come to be known as the New York intellectuals. You might know them as neoconservatives uh, in the 80s. And so it's this group of writers, um, poets, um, thinkers. This, this would include Lionel Trilling, Diana Trilling, um, uh, Dwight MacDonald, I'm going to forget, Hannah Arendt. Um, there's a whole group of... Uh, well, that's, that's the other side of it. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, this becomes the group known as the New York Intellectuals. And um, writing for magazines like Commentary, Partisan Review... Dissent and the New York Review of Books in the 60s. So they're the orthodox group of New York intellectuals. They're much more politically oriented. Um, and then there's this alternative group. So Lenny Bruce, um, Joseph Heller, Mad Magazine, Bob Dylan, uh, later Leonard Cohen. Um, individuals who, in Lenny Bruce's term, you know, uh, um, if you live in New York, you're Jewish, even if you're Goyish. If you live in Boot, Montana, you're Goyish, even if you're Jewish. So He's, he's part of, uh, Lenny Bruce would be another one, of these alternative Jewish intellectuals um, who, who I would call intellectuals but aren't necessarily called that with a capital I. So he kind of fits between these two groups and a lot of what he's doing in his films mirrors what they're saying either mm. in their articles and poetry and stories or music mm. uh, 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 and, and other stuff. And explain that because the key issue is about why there's hardly any, let's say none really, overt Jewishness. In other words, he was going for universal audience, but with Jewish ideas. And explain about the fact that it used to be Jewish and then the cutting of it, all that, that whole process. Yeah. So what's really interesting, so Kubrick comes out of that kind of early 20th century uh, mode where Jewish movie moguls correctly calculated that their working class audiences didn't want to watch Jews on screen. So people like Issa Danielovich become Kirk Douglas, Betty Persky becomes Lauren Bacall, Bernie Schwartz becomes Tony Curtis. Um, it's marketing, and um, Kubrick, I think, comes out of that instinct that if he puts Jews in his movies, he becomes ethnically defined. And if you remember, in the 40s and 50s, there's that whole group of American writers, um, well, Arthur Miller a bit earlier, um, but I suppose comes to fruition in the 40s, um, Saul Bellow, Bernard Malamud, they don't want to be considered Jewish writers. They want to be considered American writers. Mm. And so Kubrick fits into that trend. Norman Mailer would be another one. Um, so that's the first instinct, is commercially, if you want to make a movie about Jews, it might not do as well. Mm. But what's interesting is from every film from The Killing onwards, he takes a source text, always adapted, fiction. Um, and in the source text, you have explicit Jewish characters. He then removes those explicit Jewish characters, but kind of alludes to them through a sensibility in the film. Mm. And you can trace this through the production process, through the script writing process. So, um, I mean, we've got up here, for example, um, Spartacus. Um, so Spartacus is a novel by Howard Fast, and one of the chapters of Spartacus is narrated by a character called David the Jew. Now, David the Jew makes it through the scripts, um, but eventually by the finished film is removed. Um, well, he isn't removed. The character's still in the film called David. But you wouldn't know that unless you'd read the novel. But he's played by a recognisably Jewish actor. And then all the Jewishness that used to be in David the Jew explicitly gets absorbed by Kirk Douglas. Mm. So Kirk Douglas, I mean, everyone, you know, Jewish people would recognise him as a Jewish actor. Um, whether it's, you know, you don't need to... You, 
know, <laughs> you don't need to proclaim it. Like when, the, when the Vikings was released, the Jewish Chronicle uh, uh, proclaimed, the Vikings are coming and they're Jewish, because it had Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis. Um, and then all the Jewishness that gets taken out of David gets put into Kirk Douglas, and they make him into a Moses-type character. So you think they're doing it because just it's a marketing issue? Because I think it's, it's a bit more, which is that to do with it, but it's when we're so used to now public Jewish culture in America, you know, on mainstream TV, that it seems like it's always been like that. But we go back to the 50s, it wasn't like that. Even, I mean, I know it from the view of um, other kind of writing, but even post-Holocaust writing, you know, Elie Wiesel, Nobel Prize winning writer, he only writes his first book, Nights, and gets it published in the early 60s. No one is talking about the Holocaust and that stuff in the 50s. Uh, for lots of maybe historic reasons, moving on after the war, not wanting to look back. So Judaism is associated with so many negative things and historic things that I, I think it's not just, I think you're right, it's a PR issue, but there, there's a kind of moving away and a, a desire of Jews to be universal. And I think so Kubrick, it's not that he's hiding his Jewishness, that, that, that no one did it publicly. Would you say that's, that's, that's true? Um, yes and no. I'd say, yeah, that's also, but you do, I mean, Dyer Van Frank's published 55 right. in the United States. Um there's a book called um, Hiding in Plain Sights, um, right. not my one, uh, there's another one, um, where, you know, you've got the Marx Brothers in an earlier period, right? It's not, I would say, consistently, explicitly Jewish, but, but people who knew the films read the codes. Right. So they understood. Those who didn't, didn't. But it, so it still worked for them on a, on a double level. I think the genius of, say, Kubrick's films is it doesn't matter whether you get this or not, you can still enjoy his films. Mm. Um, I'm trying to argue that this is another string to the bow that does fit into a period where Jews are universalizing, but at the same time it's rooted in their own ethnic mm -hmm. experience. Um, you just put it beneath the surface. Yeah. So with this character of David the Jew or Spartacus, you might just watch it and go, well, he's Thracian, he's Greek. Okay, but in the novel, it says Thracians, um, well, that was just another word for Jews in, 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 in the novel. So people familiar with the novel would have understood... <laughs> That relationship. Yeah. People, other people just watch it and think, great gladiator movie. Yeah. No, no, I think, so, I think so it works on this double level of being both kind of universal and specific. No, when I read the book, when you explained that historically, and also you then chose four or five key themes of Jewish ideas that Kubik puts in. We're going to go through and see some of those themes with the clips. So the first one is with Spartacus. Should you watch first or describe the issue, describe, the, describe it first? You all, you all know about Kubik, right? You all seen Spartacus? No. No. It's always Who's one or two. I've seen Spartacus. I've seen Spartacus. It's a shanda. It's a shanda. <laughs> so do you want to okay. explain a bit? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Spartacus, right. 1959, 1960. Kirk Douglas, it's his vehicle. He fires Anthony Mann. Um, and after three weeks of shooting, he hires Stanley Kubrick, cause he, who he worked with on Pars of Glory in 57, because he thinks he can control him. And... Uh, um, the movie... Wait, 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 when did Ben-Hur come out? Uh, 59. So the reason why... So the, you know the connection, right? Yeah. Um, the connection is that um, Kirk Douglas wanted to do Ben-Hur, uh, but they gave the part to Charlton Heston. And he was annoyed because they gave the Jewish part to the Goy, right? It's Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is Ben-Hur, yeah. the son Judah of Judah Ben-Hur, yeah. And um, so, so to get back at um, the studio, he made... Um, he made Spartacus, uh, which is probably considered the best epic from, from that period. Yeah. Um, so this is the kind of Ten Commandments, the Robe period. 
um, movies that are used to fight the Cold War by uh, stressing religious analogies. Um, and uh, here we have a Moses-like liberator uh, uh, liberating the slaves from freedom in a desert-like landscape and then uh, uh, taking them to the sea, right? Which also came out the same year as Exodus, the Leonurus novel, um, which was also adapted by Dalton Trumbo, who adapted Spartacus, the, uh, part of it anyway. Um, so but, um, we're going to show a clip um, so Spartacus liberates these slaves. He's taken them across Egypt to the sea, uh, Egypt, see, uh, <laughs> Italy to the sea, and um, between him and the sea stands the uh, Roman legions of Crassus, played by Laurence Olivier. And um, it's great stories I could tell you. It could be all night. And um, this is the aftermath of the battle sequence. Have we a count of prisoners? We haven't made the final count, sir. I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy. By command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. 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 Um, I just wanted to point out, so this character to the right there is David the Jew, okay? So this is an example of, um, it's played by Harold J. Stone. Um, so people at the time would have recognised this as a Jewish actor. And, um, Do you mean the one with the... On the right here or two of, of, yep, here. Yeah. Oh, that one, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I was trying to get that. So, so what I'm trying to say is, is that what you've got is this explicitly Jewish novel. They removed the Jewishness from it only to keep the character in, played by a recognisably Jewish actor, um, and then two other recognisably Jewish actors are the lead. And this character's on a whole, uh, an invention. So, so. Mm, but I think, but the, let, let's now get into that theme you talked okay. about, which is the kind of, uh, he calls it the macho mensch, or macho menschlichkeit, which is that Kirk Douglas, the part Spartacus plays, it's a, it's a universal uprising, it's a rejection of hierarchy, He's, he's shown as a kind and caring leader, and he's also macho. So you're arguing this, this is a, a Kubrick <coughs> argument of what Jewishness is, this macho mensch, do you want to explain? Um, yeah, so in, 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 in this film and uh, Paths of Glory, um, one of the ideas that, that comes to the fore in the 50s is the idea of 
I mean, Rafi said it's the macho mensch. So this is the mensch, you know, the Yiddish term for a decent, upstanding, ethical human being, but is also strong and tough. Um, so he's not uniformly strong and tough, um, but he's also ethical. So that, and, and, and what I argue is in all Kubrick's film is he, he sets up this kind of binary, this opposition between the two types, um, um, between the sort of menschlichkeit, this is the Jewish sensibility that influences beneath the surface, and, and uh, the, <laughs> the goyishness of the, uh, the non-Jewishness, but in a pejorative way, of, the, of, of say, the oppressors. Mm. Um, and the interesting about Kirk Douglas is he's strong and tough, as you can see by his musculature here. But at the same time, if, if you've seen the film, he's also a caring, considerate, sort of family-type leader. And he contrasts the whole time with uh, Crassus, the leader of the uh, Romans, played by uh, of the Roman troops, played by Laurence Olivier, as being um, uh, entirely directed by his appetites and passions. And the classic sequence, which was cut out the original release, that many of you might know, is the snails and oysters, uh, where he attempts to seduce Antoninus there on the left um, by asking him if he prefers snails or oysters, or he likes both of them. Um, I haven't prepared that clip. Because it's trafe. Uh, when, when I read the, the, the film that I find the hardest to relate to of Kubrick, I'm talking personally here because I get to my special uh, interview with Nathan, I get to hear my opinion, which is Eyes Wide Shut, which is just, it's not the moral issue so much, it's just a weird movie and I couldn't relate to it. But after reading the book, you argued the Tom Eyes Wide Shut people, yes? So the Tom Cruise character, you describe in a similar way. He's a doctor, he's moral, he finds all these people around him very, very, very different, and that's the Jewishness coming out as well there. Yeah, in one sense, uh, yeah, it's not the only argument I'm making, but... Part of, yeah. Yeah, the, the interesting about Eyes Wide Shut is it kind of is a counter-argument because Kubrick didn't, wasn't just trying to say that Jews are the moral ones and non-Jews are the immoral ones. He's more complicated than that. Mm. He's also show, showing that the Jews are the immoral ones as well. So if you take Eyes Wide Shut, mm. the, 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 the Menchi character the, uh, is Dr. Bill, who we read as Jewish because he's Jewish in the source text. Um... But the most evil character in the film is played by um, yeah. Sidney Pollack, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Ziegler. So, you know, clearly you can read him as Jewish as well, but he's yeah. the kind of evil character in the film. So you've got the two elements contrasted. So why is he uh, doing that? What's, what's he trying to say with that? What's he thinking? In, in that film or in general? In general. In general. He's not saying Jews are moral. He's saying there's a, Jew, there's a moral value to certain parts of society yep. expressed by by Jews to an extent, and I'm going to play with that in my movies in terms of their, their, how, how society relates to them or how they survive in a, society, a challenging society. Yeah, I mean, I think he's saying there's a Jewish kind of inclination to work towards um, ethical thinking, ethical behaviour. Mm -hmm. We don't always live up to it. Uh, at the same time, we actually um, can be its opposite. Mm. Um, in 1964, Kubrick released Dr. Strangelove, and um, this is a film that reflects on nuclear holocaust as well as the holocaust with a capital H. Um, and many people, including Elie Wiesel, were conflating the two terms in this period. Um, and in the sequence we're going to show... Um, all right, who hasn't seen Dr. Strangelove? No? It's my mother. <laughs> and I came and gave, gave a talk on it here... Um, so I'm not explaining it for my mum. <laughs> anyway, so in Doctor Strangelove, um, the B-52 bomber is flying towards its target destination to drop a nuclear bomb on the Soviet Union, 
which will then trigger a, a doomsday device and lead to effectively mass genocide. Um, so in Doctor Strangelove, remember, this is a film about nuclear holocaust and the holocaust. And uh, I'm just going to show you this sequence um, towards <coughs> the end. This is what we see in here is the um, one explicitly Jewish character that makes it through to a final film. And this is Lieutenant Goldberg, okay, uh, played by a Jewish actor, Paul Tamarin. Um, and so that's the one exception to the rule. He's, he's on the plane? Yes, he's the uh, radio operator. He's with, um, Do with Darth Vader? Yes. So this is Darth Vader's <laughs> first role. So the voice of Darth Vader was in Doctor Strangelove. You know this, right? And the body of uh, Darth Vader was in um, Clockwork Orange. Right? So, so the guy who played Darth Vader is in Clockwork Orange, and um, he's got a thick West Country accent. And when he went to the premiere, he didn't realise they hadn't used his voice. Um, you know, Green Cross Code Man, for those of you who are old enough. Um, and they dubbed him with James L. Jones. So this is James L. Jones' first role. Um, so what this, this plane is headed towards its target, about to drop a nuclear device on the Soviet Union. And start World War III, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and lead to mass genocide. Correct track indicator, minus seven. Roger, seven miles. Back GPI and acceleration back to GPI acceleration back to set. Target distance, six miles. Roger, six miles. Pulse Ident Transponder active. Pulse Ident Transponder active. Target distance, five miles. Five miles. Homing alignment factor, zero mode. Homing alignment factor, zero mode. Target distance, four miles. Roger. Four miles. Auto CDC into manual Teleflex link. Auto CDC into manual Teleflex link. Target distance, three miles. Roger, three miles. Target in sight. Where in hell is Major Kong? You might have seen this as a meme with Donald Trump, Theresa May. Uh, do you want me to explain the? Yeah. Okay, so um, in this bomb run sequence, um, each member of the B-52 flight crew is engaged in their tiny little task of trying to release this bomb. And um, if we watch it a little bit earlier, James L. Jones um, um, <coughs> is... The, the circuit's gone, <coughs> and he's trying to flip it, and it's not working. And you can see he's visibly sweating because he can't fulfil his role as a cog in this machine. And um, what Stanley Milgram, you're familiar with Stanley Milgram, who did the famous experiments, um, the obedience experiments. Stanley Milgram, in his obedience experiments, um, was trying to understand the Nazi mentality. You know, how could people commit these atrocities? So that's why he carried out those uh, obedience experiments. He cited this sequence in the introduction to his book, um, as an example of the sort of obedience to authority and lack of thinking 
um, of thoughtlessness um, um, whereby people could carry out such actions. So had these individuals thought about the wider ramifications of what they were doing, they wouldn't be so quick to release that bomb because it will lead to uh, a mass genocide. And Milgram was kind of very much um, also using the concepts of Hannah Arendt, um, who famously came up with the notion of the banality of evil um, and observing the trial of Eichmann, that, um, that uh, you know, Eichmann was an example of the banality of evil and that he showed a kind of lack of thoughtlessness about the wider ramifications of his actions. He just did the task assigned to him. Um, but another key uh, and controversial thesis that came out of her um, work and, and earlier work by Raoul Hilberg was that Jews cooperated in their own destruction. And the idea being that had uh, Jewish cooperation not, uh, not taken place, then the Nazi genocide wouldn't have been as effective. These, this was the argument. Um, and Kubrick, um, in the book, we have some um, note cards because of the, where Kubrick explicitly referred to six million Jews cooperating in their own destruction. So we know when he's th making Dr. Strangelove, he's thinking yeah. about these analogies. And you've got um, the quote here. Yeah. So, you're right, so six million Jews cooperated. Um, what does it say here? Yes. Um, I'm used to his writing. Yeah. <laughs> Those of us who've done it, gone to the archives, you, you, at first you're like, I can't read that. Yeah, you can see it here. Um, so six million Jews cooperated in their destruction. 400 to 600 million USA, Europe, Russia do the same thing. Okay, so you see he's making a clear analogy. And he's also making clear analogies with the kind of Holocaust literature that's coming out in, in, in the early 60s. And Milgram picks up on this. In, you know, if you think I'm making a stretch, Milgram uh, comes out with this in the 70s. Um, now, the key thing, going back to the point you're asking me, is he includes the Jewish flight operator as part of that machinery. Mm. You know, why? Well, he's saying, I would argue, that Jews are also cooperating in their own destruction. We're not <laughs> exempt from the evil. Um, he's not saying somehow we're different. We're not exempt. And, and one of the controversial arguments I make in the book is that the character of Dr. Strangelove the titular character, um, most people think is a comic Nazi, is, is based on a Nazi. And he, I'm arguing, actually, he's so comedic and so parodic that we can't read him as a Nazi because, in fact, he's actually based on all these Jewish characters, um, both in accent, in behavior, and look, and all these real-life Jewish nuclear strategists. Uh, and, in fact, one nuclear, Jewish, nuclear, Jewish nuclear strategist complained, why did you have to lampoon us like that? Mm. Um, so why is he called Strange Love? Because you never, I didn't, I looked for that in the book. Because the only thing I thought, I thought you were going to say, is because he had a strange glove, and I always thought that's well, that's a good one. Because I know I was waiting for you to say it, because like you say pretty much everything else. So I was like, yeah, I don't know why he's called Strange Love. I couldn't understand. What well, the whole film's one big sexual joke, right? You know that from from the opening. What well, the bomb? Well, this. Yeah, this is the closing orgasm, yeah. and it opens with a refueling sequence, which is copulation. My mum's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have children, it's fine. <laughs> Immaculately. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are beautiful. Um, uh, he's, he's riding the bomb here, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, here, and one of the bombs originally, it says, Hi there and dear John. Yeah, Hi the there is a kind of approach in a bar. Dear John, the I'm getting divorced letter. Originally, it had Lolita. It, the whole film, for those of you who remember it, is one big sexual joke. All the names General Jack D. Ripper, yeah. Merkin Muffley. Um, the market, the um, uh, ambassador Dasadsky, Premier Kisoff, Bakwano, I could go on. Um, 
one of the I, things that strikes again, me again that joke is to do is it just a joke or it's also about the idea you talked about the mechanism of society and the structure so we don't get our yeah. moral awareness that hierarchy is about dominance so is he making the parallel with sexuality is that is that what he's doing there well i think it's two things i mean well, more than two things one there's the um well, if you read Cold War foreign policy documents, they're full of sexual um, uh, uh, terms. Uh, we got to talk, you know, National Security Council Directive 68, for example, talks about penetrating the outer ring of Soviet defences. Mm. Okay, that just might be my mind, but I'll relate that to Kubrick's. I think he's he's lampooning that Cold War mindset. Well, and the way Trump talks about, you know, the, yep. the uh, you know small rocket man. Exactly. There's definitely imagery going on there with those yeah, two. Yeah, and large hands. And, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, uh, um, he's lampooning that whole mindset. Um, but at the same time, one of the things I argue in the book is Kubrick had what I would call a Jewish smutty sense of humour. Right. He loved a toilet joke. He loved a sexual joke. Um, so, so through the book, I point out how in some of the choices of material, on one level, I think making a joke, making a film... A about a bunch of freshly shaved privates in full metal jacket would have appealed to him. Yeah. Uh, making a film about seamen in uh, The Seafarers would have appealed to him on one level. And I think that one of the things I argue is that he has this toilet sense of humour. Mm. I mean, I'll give an example with 2001. The monolith in 2001, right? Mum, have you seen 2001? Has anyone here not seen 2001? Yeah. <laughs> okay, but you all know about the monolith, right? Yeah, so a lot of contemporary reviewers compared it to the Ten Commandments, but with no writing on it. Okay, so a blank decalogue. Right, where does Kubrick put the Ten Commandments? On the on the door of the zero gravity toilet. <laughs> right, there's ten, there's rules. ten rules. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick is a very famous film director and, and auteur. I believe is the term for uh, the kind of director that uh, Stanley Kubrick is very uh, uh, particular about getting certain shots, I believe. Uh, uh, responsible for uh, one of my favourite films, Clockwork Orange. Another Kubrick film I really like is Eyes Wide Shut, which I believe was filmed partly at one of the Rothschilds' homes for the uh, party. 2001 is another one I'm familiar with. The rest of his oeuvre, I'm kind of... Uh, might have seen an old one, Spartacus. Uh, I'm, I'm not that dedicated a fan. I've waded through them all. Uh, yeah, I also know that uh, his favourite typeface was called Futura because I noticed my friend's collection of books all had some sort of typefaces on the covers, apart from one. Yeah, and Plotwork Orange, I suppose I got into that and part, partly by uh, uh, Zig Zig Sputnik, who used the, some of the uh, Music and imagery for Clockwork Orange. Anyway, I won't bore you any further. That's about all I know. Okay, so we've talked about the macho mensch, and we've talked about this kind of mechanism society so that it's not so moral. I want to go either to Barry Lyndon or Clockwork Orange next in terms of the issues you talk about. Your choice. So, what, what, um, so I, can we go to Barry Lyndon? Because yeah. there's a key issue as well, which is, I think, very Jewish, and it's, uh, um, which is about the Jew entering modern society, right? Or, well, we're talking, uh, talking after nationalisms in the 18th and 19th century, what it meant for the Jew to be part of modern society and about what, what you quoted from a book, the ordeal of civility, of a Jew being part of public society and that we didn't quite fit. 
right? And some Jews wanted to assimilate in order to fit, and some wanted to reject, and the way society reacted. And there's a lot of that issue in Kubrick's movies. So do you want to talk about that a bit and look at this clip from yep. Barry um, Lyndon? Okay, so Barry Lyndon is 1975. This is an, uh, um, Have you seen this one, Barry Lyndon? It's probably it's one really moment. worth seeing. I saw it quite recently. Um, it seems like a very slow period um, kind of... Uh, uh, period kind of Victorian movie about this guy Barry Lyndon who wants to kind of make it in society but well you'll explain why it's like if you just look at like that it looks very slow and boring once you know what's going on it's incredible so yeah and you have to sit on a big screen I mean I think you can only really everyone's got big screens at home now yeah. so <laughs> not not uh <laughs> this size um okay so Barry Lyndon is a Thackeray novel that he, ad- uh, he adapted there's two novels where he wrote the screenplays on his own and that was Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, he said, because they were so well written, they were like screenplays, they were easily adapted. Every other film he, he collaborated, because he wasn't a writer, and, and he confessed he wasn't a writer. And I think one of the reasons this appealed to him was because he wanted to make a movie about Napoleon, and the studios wouldn't let him. So he kind of poured that frustrated desire to make a, 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 a period film, historical drama, into Barry Lyndon, and there's battle sequences in there that... that, that one can see clearly came out of the pre-production work he did on Napoleon. Um, on a second level, Barry is an Irishman trying to make it in this sort of glacial English society with all its rules and customs. Um, in fact, I think one of the reasons why Kubrick chose this film was because it was European society at its most ritualised. Everything had a, had a ritual, uh, like duelling. Duelling bookends the movie. Um, and... Um, he has this character, Barry, that he makes far more sympathetic than in the novel, who's an Irish character. Um, And I I read him in the book as being kind of a Kubrick avatar. Kubrick moved to England in... um, in, And when I say England, I mean England. uh, In in, uh, 62 to make Lolita. And he, apart from a few transatlantic trips, he stayed there ever since to 99. And... um, Kubrick, the American who never lost his Bronx nasal accent, probably never picked up manners, British manners, and was Jewish and looked like one. Right after after um, 2001, he grew a beard to look like a rabbi, particularly unkempt one. Um, no offence. No offence. <laughs> I think you've got more facial hair than me at the moment. This is carefully true. <laughs> no, much. Um, I've just put my foot in it there. <laughs> anyway, um, Arthur C. Clarke said, he, you know, with his big bushy beard, he looked Jewish and he knew it. Um, and I imagine that character in this kind of, for those of you who remember the 50s and 60s, I've just heard the stories, you know, you can imagine he didn't quite feel, feel like he fit. So I think he had this sort of identification with Barry. Um, the sequence I'll show you um, is, is um, a very key moment. Um, I could tell you all about the technical detail of this film if you if you want, um, but everything is shot in a very glacial fashion. Okay, a lot of people find this movie slow um, and um, alienating and cold, and I think if it is alienating and cold, it's because that's how Kubrick wanted you to feel about the society he's representing, mm. and it was shot in such a way that it does represent two D painting. Okay, it's kind of flatness to it. Not only does it look like um, 19th century painting representing the 18th century, 
um, which is what Thackeray was, a 19th century novel representing the 18th century. But it has a flatness to it because I think he's emphasising the flatness and the facade of these characters. Mm. Well, I thought as well, which is that uh, uh, there's so many times where he starts off with the character and then just pans out and out and out. So you kind of start off with the idea that there's a character who can act and do something, but then as the camera gets bigger and you see the whole context, you realise he can't do anything. He's just part of a stagnant picture yep. and he can't really move out of it. And he keeps doing this over and over again until eventually you start feeling that the things you're talking about. No, that's precisely right. I mean, uh, uh, um, the other thing is he does is he pulls out... So you, so you, he, he isolates Barry within a huge frame. Mm. Um, so if you've got the big picture... Barry's usually shown as a tiny, isolated figure against uh, a, a large landscape to emphasise the alienation and isolation he feels in this cold English um, society. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I call it a spatial odyssey. See what I did there? Yeah. Um, uh, also, also, in the same way, the music, it's so... The music is literally like fate. You hear the music and you think, I cannot get out of this. This is the way the world is going to be. And this is just going to go on. It just repeats over and over again. Yeah. So you're kind of drowning in it. So, you know, I, because I read, I hadn't actually read Bandage before. That's the one movie I hadn't seen before I read your book. And I read that chapter and then I watched the movie and it was like a totally different thing. So uh, just a word about the main character, Barry, who he yeah. was and the name Barry, because I love that okay. bit as well. <laughs> and I'll show a bit if you want. Um, yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> Right, it's not the only argument. What, what I've done with this is I pull in lots of information from different sources to build an argument. And I have to emphasise, this is just an argument. The thing with Stanley Kubrick, the genius of Kubrick, and I think one of the reasons why his films survive, is he never told you what to think. Yeah? I never once... That card that I, referred to, that I referred to earlier is probably the closest I've got to knowing an answer. Okay, you don't find the magic bullet. You don't, uh, you don't find that, yeah, this is what I meant by this film. Because he refused to tell his audiences what to think. Okay, he had an idea in his head. He didn't always share it. Um, sometimes he didn't know what he wanted until other people gave it to him. Um, so in this, I, I'm making an argument, and I'm trying to pull in sources from different places to prove the argument. But in the end, you know, it's <laughs> up to you to decide whether I've done it or not. Um, one of the arguments I make is Lenny Bruce, I turn to most uh, points to, to get a good quote out of, is um, when Barry Goldwater was standing for the uh, for presidential election in, um, is it 72? 64. 64, sorry, yep. Um, uh, Lenny Bruce made a joke going, Barry, Barry? He goes, you name me one goy named Barry. He's like, ju, 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 ju. He's like, I'm thinking about this, the only... Jewish, the only people I know called Barry are Jews, right? This is, this is one of the things that used to happen in the United States. Um, personally, no. You'll probably all come up with Barrys that are like, uh, uh, oh, this Barry. One of the things that amuses me, in the early 20th century, when Jewish immigrants moved to the United States and wanted to assimilate, they gave their children names that they thought were classic English names, Lionel, Norman, Sidney, Stanley, um, but it turns out the only people who are calling those kids, their kids, those, were Jews. <laughs> so any Lionel, Norman, Stanley, Sidney, you know, you think all the oh, filmmakers, wow. Sidney Lumet, Sidney Pollock, Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kramer, Stanley Milgram, I could go on, um, tended to be Jewish. And Barry was an example of that. So that's one of the examples. Uh, uh, and, and the actor as well? Well, the actor's Ryan O'Neill, um, who, who obviously Irish heritage, but it turns out somewhere down the line had Jewish heritage, as did Marissa Berenson. Mm. Who played his wife? But also, but he's an American, famous American actor, yep. and everybody else in the entire movie is British. Yes. So he's a fish out of water. So 
by telling if you if you think it's an Irishman outside of England, but it's also clearly everybody knew Ryan Neal by then a, uh, an American outside of England. So it's clearly not about one particular outsiderness. It's all different kinds. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and then the Jewishness comes out of there. Okay. Well, before we start, I think the context does help. Can I? Go on, you, you go on. Because I love this bit because it's all been about this formality and Bowen is trying to be accepted and he's invited all these wealthy British to his home to a recital of classical music and it, this is the moment he's going to maybe get accepted and maybe become a lord himself. The problem is, you know, he's married into, he's married into wealth and the, uh, the two, two boys are going to walk in. One's actually his boy with the new wife, but with the wife, but the other one is the boy from a previous marriage who doesn't accept um, who doesn't accept Barry Lyndon as his father, and at the height of supposed acceptance, it all goes pear-shaped. Don't you think he fits my shoes very well, your ladyship? Dear child, what a pity it is I am not dead for your sake. The Lindens would then have a worthy representative and enjoy all the benefits of the illustrious blood of the Barrys of Barryville. Would they not, Mr. Redmond Barry? From the way I love this child, my lord, you ought to know I would have loved his elder brother, had he proved worthy of any mother's affection. Madam! I have borne as long as mortal could endure the ill treatment of the insolent Irish upstart whom you have taken into your bed. It is not only the lowness of his birth and the general brutality of his manners which disgusts me but the shameful nature of his conduct towards your ladyship, his brutal and ungentlemanlike behavior, his open infidelity, his shameless robberies and swindling of my property and yours. And as I cannot personally chastise this low-bred ruffian, and as I cannot bear to witness his treatment of you and loathe his horrible society as if it were the plague, I have decided to leave my home and never return at least during his detested life, or during my own. <laughs> that moment that it's been so civil all the way through these former cameras, then he's got a handheld camera, and it's just complete ke mayhem. He's totally failed that moment. He thought he was going to get accepted. You know, and for me also, the kid walking in with the shoes, yeah. grinning child, that, what, why, was, why did the older brother make him do that? Yeah. He's saying, that's Barry Lyndon, right? He's a grinning idiot trying to fill the shoes of my father, and he doesn't do it. And he's a joke. And that's what's going on here. And it's like, you know, the Jew equivalent doesn't fit in modern society. And he tries to be part of it, it doesn't work. And it's it. also, the, the, you know, the terms in which he describes Barry, you know, low bread, low birth. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the other thing is as well is that, you know, everything here is highly ritualised. You know, look at the, 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 the white faces, the orderly music, the orderly recital, um, the way they're dressed. 
Um, the forms of address, there's a great bit earlier where they're robbed in the mm. politest way ever. To, you know, to whom do I have the pleasure of addressing? You know, Captain Feeney at your service. Yeah. Well, Captain Feeney's service is he's about to rob uh, Barry. Um, so it's all this use of euphemism, which is very loaded as well, given what I said earlier. Um, but what I like about the use of handheld camera, there's only two points at which he uses it in the entire movie. This is the second one. The first one is a boxing match. Um, which relates to the work you've done uh, about um, Barry in the 18th century knows how to box scientifically. And I would say there's only one place he learned that from, and that's Daniel Mendoza, uh, uh, um, Peter Sellers' um, uh, uh, maternal great-great-great-grandparent. Was he? Yep. Oh. Um, anyway, so, so, but the other the reason is, is Barry's got all this pent-up emotion at having to repress everything to pass in this society. And he lets slip here, and this is the point at which everything goes downhill. But I think there's a sense of exhilaration uh, uh, on Barry's part. Mm. And, and um, Lord Bullingdon, uh, played by Leon Vitali here, is such an odious character in the way he's presented that I think, well, call me heartless, but you identify with Barry beating him. Yeah. Um, and I think what Kubrick wants you to feel is that sense of release and exhilaration of giving to English society what it deserves, mm. a, a jolly good hiding. And I bet that's how he felt as well. Mm. So, so, um, yeah, uh, um, I think I think these things come mm. together there. Yeah, and there's wonderful imagery again, biblical stuff that I like. So the last scene you see of Barry, he's had, he's um, is it going in the leg? He got shot in the leg. He's um, had it amputated. He's had it amputated, and the last thing is he's hobbling, right? And the you, you might think it's a stretch, but if you know your Bible. Right, the point at which Jacob could survive and fight his brother Esau, which is about dominance in society, he's nervous the night before and fights an angel and loses and limps in the leg. And to this day, there's Jewish law about what kosher food, what part of an animal you can eat and not the hind quarter because of the limping of Jacob's leg. And the imagery in the Bible is that the Jew can't handle power in society and is weakened by it, can survive, but actually can't take it. The limping is that imagery, and that's what happens at the end of this movie, which is, which is amazing. And the reason he's limping is because he does a duel with this guy, with his adopted son, and, it, and the adopted son doesn't know what he's doing and mucks it up, and Barry could easily kill him, but he doesn't. So even at that most macho moment of acceptance, there's a kind of moral part to him. He never says why, but it's just obvious when you watch it what's going on. She's a kind of pent-up moral person, wants to be accepting society, doesn't quite know how to do it. And once I heard that chapter, the movie becomes a totally... You understand what Kubrick is talking about in this movie, and it's, it's, very, it's, very, it's very powerful to watch. And a very personal project, because Kubrick... Uh, it was the only film that he made uh, a, a loss on. Um, well, mature film. And it was a movie kind of out of its time for the 70s, for 1975. I think Jaws is coming out and, and whatnot. Um, but yet he pursued it. So clearly this was a very personal and I think autobiographical project for him um, in there. So I want to move on now because I'm conscious of time, but a big issue for me, which I love obviously, is it's going to be 2001 and God. So you might say he didn't believe, but... Uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz always says that, you know, the search for extraterrestrial life is the same as the search for God. You're trying to understand where we are in this universe. And if we can find greater beings or historical beings who might know it, it'll help us understand what we are. So one might you might call science fiction, one you might call religious, but it's the same desire. 
who am I, where do I fit in the universe? And that's what I think 2001, well, he's addressing many things in 2001, but do you want to talk a little bit about it and, and yep. contextualise? Yep, and then maybe after this we'll open up. Uh, yeah, and we'll show the clip. And, yeah, and, and yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's 50th anniversary this year, which is another plug. 16th of June in Bangor. We're, we're doing a whole day to celebrate uh, 2001, including people who made the film are coming up to Bangor. And if you're thinking, why are they going to Bangor? Because nowhere else in the UK has asked them to do it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, um, so we might as well do it there. And that will include an ape's head. Um, a what? An, uh, uh, one of the original ape's heads. Oh, I thought you were referring to a meal. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, not kosher, Rabbi. No, do, do you want a fish head? A fish head. Wrong time of year, no? Yeah. Um, 16th of June. Yeah. Um, some, some here are coming. Some here will be coming, I hope. Um, anyway, so 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, Kubrick described this as, uh, as a $6 million, religious, uh, $6 million religious movie or a scientific uh, definition of God. Um, and clearly, um, he's playing around with religious concepts. Um, in the book, I argue that the, first, the immediate section is, the first section is creation, then the first section is, uh, uh, um, is Genesis, and that later sections clearly play around with liturgical, um, midrashic, uh, 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 and Kabbalistic symbolism. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the section I picked here was the, was the very end. Um, so this is a film, 1968. It's very interesting, because you think everything's going on in 1968. Some of you might have seen that superb series on BBC iPlayer, BBC The Vietnam War. You watch that. Um, unfortunately, we only get the truncated version. I want to see the US uh, uh, version. Um, 68 is the key year in the in, in, in um, Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive, but then everything falls apart in the United States. Assassinations, riots, um, campus shootings. Um, and yet Kubrick for, sets his, releases a movie that, that is completely depoliticized. I mean, apart from one little minor kind of Cold War type conversation. It's a movie, again, out of its time. And I think one of the reasons it appealed to a kind of younger generation, they said if you're over 30, you hated it, and if you're under 30, you loved it and saw it five times, right? Um, and I think one of the reasons it appeals is because it, it looked for the bigger questions. Was it, who here hasn't seen 2001? Is this? We've all seen it. Excellent. So it asked, the, just Norma, the, the bigger questions, um, you know, where, do, where does human evolution come from? You know, how did it start? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the, the, the appeals of the movie was the, was the fact that it didn't refer to immediate events, but those immediate events could be read through this bigger picture. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what is there's something you mentioned in the book, the monolith, which has been interpreted as many different things, this monolith. But the most basic one which you mention is, it's a, well, the Hebrew word is matseva. It's a, uh, what do you call it? It's a, a standing stone. A standing stone. Now, you might not know this, but just go back to Genesis and read. That's what they would set up before you have sacrifices in the temple. You set up, it's called a matzeva, a standing stone, as a way of marking a place and connection to God. It's the most basic thing in the Torah. You don't notice it because it's not in the stories, but if you read it, the matzeva comes over. And as soon as you read it, I was like, oh, obviously, you know. And it's that basic rock of standing of recognition. And Kubrick, you, you did quote Kubrick. I know he doesn't explain things, but yeah. you quote it in the chapter. He says, if two, Kubrick said, if 2001 has stirred your emotions, your subconscious, your mythological leanings, then it succeeded. He's going for those primal understandings of what our purpose is and, and where we fit in. 
Um, and, in that, and in that sense, I find that very, well, Jewish, but religious in that sense of looking for God. Yeah, I mean, this is, I call this in his book his religious turn. He made a religious movie, but not a movie mm. that was about conventional religious belief because he, he didn't believe in that. Mm. He didn't have a... Um, but I think the movie itself was a religious but experience. But is it? It's not. He doesn't believe in it. Or he he goes for that. He, the, the way I keep thinking, he kind of goes over and over. He's trying to get to the very core. What's underneath all religions? What's at the base of that? Right. What is humanity? So it's not that he doesn't want to be religious. He wants to go for the core of yeah. all things in any in any genre he's working in. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, one one thing he was clear about saying is that what I believe in, if I believe in anything, doesn't accord to say a conventional religious right. religious dogma but his brother-in-law Jan Harlan said Kubrick was always taking a big bow to the unknowable right so so uh, you know he always he always acknowledged that there was a kind of managing director you know even if he didn't believe in him right <laughs> um, let's give an example I'll just show you the uh, end of the film we'll explain the concept yeah the, uh, how we, what are we up to Okay, so four sections to the film, which is self-significant. Um, this is the fourth and final section where our, 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 our lone astronaut, uh, David Bowman, has passed through the Stargate and has reached Jupiter and um, ends up in this strange room, which if you're visiting Washington and you go to the Smithsonian Museum, you can actually go into. I think it's really cool. Well, they put it there. Yeah. I'm hoping to get someone what, to... What, the set? Yeah, they've, they, well, they've recreated it. What I'm hoping to do, if we can, is get someone to do this for VR for the day in June. Mm. as an extra incentive. So we can have a VR, you can be Dave, but we'll see. Um, um, so this is Dave Bowman in the background in this strange room, human zoo, hotel room, depending on which interpretation you want to go with, uh, on, on Jupiter and... Um, can I hit a bit more context because it helps? Well, go on. I mean, explaining I mean, good, it. Yeah, well, <laughs> so he's he's in the spaceship going to this kind of future, and it's a, it's about the next stage in human evolution. Yeah. Like the first one, the famous bit with the monolith, and that makes the the apes more aware. And that, and then he could say, well, once you get a, a, a leap in evolution, then hitting someone with a stick isn't that far from a spaceship, and therefore he just jumps from one to the other. So this now the other move is the next step of human evolution. And he's changing perspective. So what we're seeing is David Bowen in, in, with his helmet looking into this room. But what he can see is David Bowen. And it's going to keep happening. We change perspective to the next one as a way of, as a way of jumping to the future, which is very clever.
movie blows everybody's mind. What's going on there? Nathan does some wonderful imagery. I noticed some more as well. Do you want to describe the imagery of what of, of the uh, in that in those last scenes? Um, well, to give some suggestion of the reading um, is is when when um, Bowman knocks over the glass. One of the things I like is actually where's the first place he goes to when he arrives in Jupiter. And if you notice, what's the first room he's in? Toilet. Yeah. Bathroom. Yeah. First place he needs to go is probably a bit blocked up after that long uh, <laughs> that long journey through the Stargate. Anyway, um, um, there's always bathrooms in Kubrick's movies. Mm. Right? There's always some uh, situation with a bathroom. I think this is part of that kind of sense of humour that I referred to earlier. Anyway, he knocks over the glass. And um, it turns out from a new book that's just come out, that was uh, Keir Delaire's, the actor's there, idea to knock it over. Not everything you see in a Kubrick film came from his mind. He, he, he was much more improvisational than people think. But he kept it in. Right? Um, now, Arthur C. Clarke said, um, well, the reason why Stanley kept this in is because clearly it refers to the... Uh, the, the tradition of smashing a glass at a Jewish wedding to commemorate... Oh, does he class it, that? Yeah, at the, wow. at the destruction of the temple. And that quote was then put into a draft of a book that Kubrick saw the galley proofs for. This was, he often did this. He, he took interviews and then corrected them hmm. uh, pre-publication, and he crossed it out. Hmm. And he wrote next to it, I can't believe that Arthur wrote this, and if he did, it's insulting to both of us. Or to words to those effects. So you could say this is Kubrick denying his Jewishness, or you could say where well, he's unwilling to share it. Um, but clearly there's something in there. Mm. Um, one could also say, and, and Raphael know more about this than I do, the kind of Kabbalistic idea of, of shattering of the vessels and it leads to the next stage. Um, he then ends up as the, he reincarnates here, um, or, um, or undergoes a metamorphosis, mm. um, which in Kabbalistic terms is Gilgul, um, which was the title of Kafka's The Metamorphosis in Yiddish, which was a text that Kubrick loved. Uh, um, and we can see a Kafka, influence of Kafka through Kubrick's work. So, you know, I go into more detail. There's lots of sort of symbolism that he yeah. puts, puts in well, there. There's high conscious. The two things I noticed, one which I mentioned in Nathan's email, is that so David Bowman is, in terms of biblical character names, he's David, right? And David played the harp and he's Bowman. Right, which is the man who plays his harp for King David. What, what I mentioned to Nathan is that, according to the rabbis, King David didn't have a lifespan. He was the quintessential king who was the embodiment of the people. And in that sense, he didn't have an ego. He was, in a, he was an expression of the people. So the rabbis say, in a wonderful midrash, that Adam, the first, right, the beginning of humanity, was meant to live for a thousand years. But he actually died at 930 because he gave 70 of his years to King David. Uh-huh. It's a crazy midrash. But what it was the rabbi who I learned with it explained it to me is saying is that a king or the ultimate pinnacle of civilization isn't something in themselves, they're an expression of everything that came before it. So you go from Adam to King David, you're going from part two of, of, uh, of, uh, of 2001 to the next one, the next level of civilization. Right? And that's why he's David in that, in that context. And he's, he's nothing of himself. But what I just noticed now as well is the floor. Can you see the floor? Why, why is it a light floor? That's normally the ceiling, not the floor. At Mount Sinai, in chapter 24 of Exodus, it says that when they went up, to uh, the, uh, the uh, Moses and Aaron and, the, and, the, and the, the elders went up to look up at God, they saw a lattice framework, live not up here, under the feet of God. 
It's a way of basically saying that what's above you is the floor of heaven. Right? God doesn't really have feet, but underneath God's feet was a lattice framework of another higher dimension. So normally that looks like a ceiling, the light floor. Right? But here it's a floor because you are now above the ceiling in heaven. So it's kind of another way of doing higher dimension, whether it's conscious or not. Image-wise, it, it fits exactly in terms of those kind of things. So I love this religious idea. Kubik's saying is, what is the next stage of human evolution, of ultimate consciousness? And it's saying that it's as big as the world. And that's why you have that, those two gliding things at the end. But uh, it's very, in that sense, very religious. So I, I enjoyed it for that reason as well. I've just learned something. So a whole new article I can... Uh, um, <laughs> we can co-write. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say right. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, um, most of the symbolism of this film has been read in a Christian framework. So this has been referred to as the second coming of Christ. Um, but clearly, I, I mean, one would that the lineage of the Messiah in Jewish tradition is, is, is the Davidic line, mm. um, which is mm. why the New Testament, you know, relates Jesus's lineage to, to King David. Um, so in a sense, I think this fits into a kind of Jewish way of thinking. And also, you know, you, we think 2,000 years is Christian because of Jesus, right? Although it's not exactly 2,000 years. But well before that, you know, the Talmud talks about that the world will live for, the universe will be a cycle of 7,000 years, like the sevens and the smash of the glass. And it will be in, in the seventh, beginning of the 7,000th year, Messiah will come. And, it's, and the, the, the Talmud, which is 1,500 years old, says the, the, the history of the world is divided into three lots of 2,000. 2,000 years of chaos, which gets us to the flood, then 2,000 years of Torah, which gets us to the mission of the Talmud, and then 2,000 years of Messiah. But because of sins, it hasn't happened yet. So the Talmud divides all of history into three slabs of 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Right? Whether Kubrick know this or not, I don't know. But if you know your Talmud, it's just it's glaring you in the face. So 2001 is a way of saying the next level, the next 2000. And before you say, well, you know, he read voraciously in many different fields. So um, I'm not saying that he did know this, but we can't say that he didn't. Which so so the, the book is full of what he does brilliantly in the book. I'm going to praise you. I apologise. First of all, by the way. For his mother. You know what it says on the back? It says, a must read, you know, um, written by Nathan Abrams, a superstar of contemporary Kubrick studies. So you finally made it as a superstar. But uh, <laughs> I like it because he summarizes each film, puts it in historical context, makes his argument, justifies it well academically, and also as with humor, um, it, chapter by chapter, it really builds a vision so that you enjoy learning the history, but then also appreciate the movies on another level. So I'm very thankful that you've done this. Um, are there any questions for the uh, for the author? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Anything about the uh, the um, the Shining? The Shining. Oh yeah, we um, we um, uh, <laughs> um. Well, I mean, I suppose the original contribution I've made, I would say, I've made to the Shining is. Um, I, in part, I look at it as a reflection on Genesis 22, the, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, where the father attempts to sacrifice the son. Um, and the problem of obedience to authority, the same problem that vexed, as I said, Stanley Milgram. And, and in the opening of his book, he quotes Genesis 22, as saying this is the age-old problem of obedience to authority. So that's on, on, on one argument. Another argument, I do connect it to the banality of evil that I referred to. 
Um, and, and some of the things we haven't discussed today, because there's loads, is that Kubrick was a fan of Freud and Kafka. And he, ex he, he read Freud in preparation for... I mean, he probably read it all through his life. But he read um, um, Freud's Uncanny in preparation for The Shining. They read Bruno Bettelheim's um, 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 Enchanted... Uh, uses of Enchantment. Uses of Enchantment. Uh, and... Um, um, he explicitly referred to Kafka. He says, I'm going to film this in the style that Kafka wrote. So horrors are going to take place in an everyday environment. If you, if you remember in The Shining, it's always lit. It's not the creepy old haunted horror house of, uh, of, all, of yore. The hotel's continually lit. And he said, that's how I'm going to shoot it. It's going to be journalistic like Kafka wrote. These horrors are going to take place in an everyday reality. So his Jewishness isn't we, we focused on a kind of, um, for part of this, a religious sort of uh, a Jewish tradition, but there was a lot of kind of cultural uh, uh, Jewishness as read through Freud, Kafka, Stefan Zweig, Arthur Schnitzler um, uh, in there. I mean, so I, those are some of the ideas that I put into The Shining. Jeffrey Cox, for example, says it's about the Holocaust. And, and to bring up to date, a movie in the cinema right now, Ready Player One by Spielberg, which is a hodgepodge of lots of history, has a homage of about 10 minutes recreating scenes from The Shining. Where is that? Right, uh, it's just in the cinema, Ready Player One. And uh, Spielberg and Kubrick had this fascinating relationship. They actually met on the set because they knocked the set down of The Shining to build Indiana Jones. That's what was going on. But Kubrick's last movie he never made, AI, he gave to Spielberg to make. And if you've seen the movie AI, people think all the soppy, cute stuff was what Spielberg put in, and all the hard stuff was Kubrick's ideas. The truth is the reverse, actually. That Kubrick had, was, was trying to do something very different with this and gave it to Spielberg to do. So what's interesting, there's a big circle going on with this, which is that you mentioned in your book, AI never got made and stuff. But now with this movie, literally in the cinema right now, the conversation is still going on of what Kubrick stands for. And even though he, he quotes like a thousand different movies and comics and computer games in this, in this movie, Ready Player One, right? the thing he gives 10, 15 minutes to is The Shining. And it's fascinating what he does with it. So uh, it's, uh, Kubrick's studies and issues are alive today. I think The Shining is one of the most quoted movies of all time by other things as well. So it's so very, very relevant. Yeah, I thought Eyes Wide Shut was the last movie. Yeah, he, well, he, he wrote, well, you, 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 it's the last The, the last movie wrote. he directed was Eyes Wide Shut, but he was, before he was made, he finished that, he, he was uh, working on a screenplay for, and, and pre-production for artificial intelligence. He handed that project over to Steven Spielberg. Um, well, the idea was they're always going to work in tandem, mm -hmm. and Spielberg completed it in 2001. And, um, the, and, the, and the other movie he was going to make, which he didn't, was his Holocaust movie. Do you want to say a word about that? Just, yeah, it's so, so interesting. So, <laughs> for years, you can look through Kubrick's uh, projects. There was a kind of stop start, stop start with a Holocaust pr film. Um, the, the novel he eventually um, alighted upon was Wartime Lies by Lewis Begley. <laughs> And um, he started to adapt that as a film called Aryan Papers. Um, but round about 92, 93, um, he dropped the project, um, presumably at the urging of Warner Brothers, because they thought the market couldn't sustain another Holocaust movie so close to Schindler's List. Um, uh, what, what's the comment that Kubrick made about Schindler's List? It's a great line. Well, according to Frederick Raphael, who we're... Uh, 
we have to take with a pinch of salt, who he collaborated with on Eyes Wide Shut. He said, that's not a movie about the Holocaust. That's a movie about success. That's a movie about 600 people being saved, not 6 million people being murdered. We so don't know whether he said that or not. Right, but if you, think, if you think how dark Schindler's List is, and Kubrick saying, that's about life, I want to do a movie about death, yeah. you realise what Kubrick might have done. So those are the two ones he didn't make. His ultimate Holocaust movie, which in a way he made through every movie that he made, some aspects of it, mm. and his artificial intelligence moving forward. So you know, the two big issues, which is you know, what is human consciousness and life and purpose, and what does one man do to another with the Holocaust? So he's really going for the big issues, which is why, why I, I relate to him. <laughs> other, other questions or comments? What was your, what was your, your take on Clockwork <laughs> it's a great chapter in the book which will be available for sale <laughs> in Mo I remember I, I interviewed another um, when Jason what's his name he did a book about Woody Allen yeah. Jason Solomon Jason yeah. Solomon I interviewed him and he said, to, he said he actually talked to Woody Allen about it and Woody Allen said the most important thing is make it heavy <laughs> I just love that of all things that's what he said so yeah. I can't I, it's, it's a decent price it's a great book I urge you to get it and you can read the whole Clockwork Orange chapter which is which is worthwhile I, um, I'll, I'll give you a brief it, it deals with the central issue of free will okay which is and, and what I argue he comes up with a um, uh, with, with a kind of um, what was the word I used um, with, with his answer is <laughs> is the same as a kind of normative Jewish approach in, in terms of free will. It, is the, um, but it also deals with issues of, again, Kafka, the Holocaust. Um, one of the issues that goes through the book uh, is, is, is fatherhood. One of the key issues I outlined at the beginning is there's a line from Barry Lyndon, actually, um, interestingly, and, and it uses the words, I just can't remember the quote for exactly, it's... Um, to be a father is to become a mensch. Okay, so, and that's in Barry Lyndon, <coughs> the text. And I think Kubrick connected when he, the sense of becoming a man with paternity. So that idea of paternity pervades his films, fathers, father figures, symbolic fathers. So I think he's also reflecting on his own position as a father and a husband and a son and a brother uh, and what that meant. And, and some of that comes through in Clockwork Orange. Um, there's more. Mm. Well, what interested always me is that I read text very closely, Jewish text, and what I realise that Nathan is doing the same with movies. Now, with a, a, a you know, Torah is for me divine and very special at high level, and this is a, a filmmaker. But for someone like Kubrick, who spends years making it, he is being careful of every shot of what objects are there. In, in The Shining, Nathan talks about him arranging what cans are in the larder that he walks into. So it's quite, there's photos of him doing it, you know, with all this Jewish food and everything. So it is intentional, and in that sense, you're reading a lot in, but I think Kubik was doing a lot of that stuff. So, so there's a comment. There's a... Well, I was going to ask, um, the, the, the image a lot of us have of Kubrick is this sort of isolated figure rattling around in a big mansion, a bit like Bowman at the end of 2001. Um, but I have a sense that he kept up friendships largely by telephone. And was he part, did he keep a relationship with people we might recognise as some of Jewish well, yes and no. I mean, the image of Kubrick that's come down over the years is, you know, incorrect and largely challenged now. Maybe not popularly, but certainly academically and those in the know. He, he Kubrick wasn't a hermit. He wasn't Howard Hughes. He didn't. He didn't like to travel. He had a family. Had a family. And he had a family, and he had pets, and he hated leaving his animals. And I kind of understand that. Um, <laughs> he, he, um, the world came to Kubrick. 
and he was a gregarious, outgoing guy, very funny, witty, charming. Um, he sucked people dry for information. He wasn't at all egotistical. He, 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 he wanted to know what his collaborators thought. Yeah. And, and he had an ongoing convers- uh, relationship with, with Spielberg ever yeah. since, since, since 80s. But over the yeah. telephone. Yeah. But yeah, 20 years. Um, Michael Hare, lots of these talk about, you're right, these ongoing 20-year conversations. I mean, one of the earliest New York intellectual relationships he had, he was taught by Lionel Trilling at, at Columbia University. He, Mark Van Doren wrote Review, who taught him of his first movie. Uh, Dwight MacDonald interviewed him in 1959, and they had a friendship for a few years. So people we recognize as New York intellectuals are the first kind he had relationships with. The second kind that I mentioned at the beginning, the reason I picked on him, he... he He's, there's a poster to Lenny Bruce in one of his movies. He wanted to work with him. Jules Pfeiffer he wanted to work with. Joseph Heller he wanted to work with on Doctor Strangelove. So that other group. Um, one of the things is, I don't know if he had a relationship with Bob Dylan, but if you look at what B- Bob Dylan's singing and what Kubrick's doing films about, you know, uh, take um, Highway uh, 61 Revisited, right? It's the same theme as, uh, as The Shining, just slightly different periods. Um, Leonard Cohen. If you read the lyrics to Leonard Cohen, the story of um, Isaac... Very similar to The Shining. So I would, I would claim that, that, that limitry is almost exactly the same. And obviously Leonard Cohen's based it on Genesis 22. So he is having relationships with those people. Um, Michael Herr, I would consider a Jewish intellectual type. Um, Frederick Raphael, who he collaborates with. Um, there are others. He keeps up a correspondence with Peter Sellers over the years about cameras. Um, he's like, no, don't buy that one, Peter. Buy this one. Um, and, and there are others. So, yeah, there are um, those figures... And if he wanted to know something, he didn't. He'd, he'd get information. Like um, he wanted to make. He sent his brother-in-law to see Isaac Bashevis Singer, to write a script about a Holocaust film. He said, "Sorry, I know. I don't know the first thing about it." So if he wanted something, because of his name, he would approach them. If, you know, Henry Kissinger. He knew Henry Kissinger, for example. When he was doing the research on Doctor Strangelove, he spoke to the experts. So in that sense, yes. You know, and and whatever his topic was, he had to master it. And then he spoke to, I mean, one of the things that might interest you, I talk quite a little bit about James Joyce and Ulysses and all this in here, so not to pigeonhole you there, Michael. But, uh, um, um, but I'm going to leave that there because you'll know more of it than I do. But yeah, there is that kind of relationship, um, um, and he maintained them. So he might not have objected to your title too much? I was told by Anthony Fruin, who I did invite tonight, I invited some of his collaborators, and in a sense I'm glad they're not here. Um, they're coming up to Bangor, actually, if you want to speak. He said Stanley would have been bemused by your title. Yeah. Um, James Joyce's Ulysses is essentially Jewish mortal. Yeah. yeah. And Ulysses is um, the Greek for Odysseus. <coughs> and Odysseus is 2001. Space Odyssey. Yeah. We could go on. Thanks to Nathan and Raphael for allowing us to broadcast a Q&A on the enlightening topic of Kubrick's Jewishness. The talk was recorded on the 28th of April 2018. Nathan's book, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, is available now from wherever you buy your books. Thanks to Adrian from Jordan for telling us who is Stanley Kubrick. And I'd like to thank our host, Jason Furlong, for all his hard work, not only hosting the show, but creating various pieces of original music for the show, including our great theme tune. I'd like to thank all our members at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, 
If you want any more info about this episode, check out the show notes on your podcast player or search Kubrick's Universe online. I'm now going to leave you with the main theme from Spartacus, composed by 15-time Academy Award nominee Alex North and performed here by the Filmation Orchestra. Thanks for listening to Kubrick's Universe. I'm Stephen Rigg. Tatty bye. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.